I think, uh, you know, in my heart, when it overflows like this, and I just think I understand a little bit, a little piece of what, what, why David said, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. You know, how he looked forward to worshiping with God's people. And I truly, at Grace Fellowship, always look forward to worshiping with you. It's always such an encouragement to my heart and soul. And I pray it is for yours also. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 8. And as you're turning, I just want to say this. Uh, It fits the message this morning. As I listen to you worship, and worship so profoundly and so excitedly and so expectantly as those uh, worship tunes and those confessions drew out your heart I just began to think about 2,000 years ago on a day on this day in the lunar cycle Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem to worship that would have put that to shame On the back of a donkey. Most likely among about, some estimate, 100,000 sheep coming over the horizon into Jerusalem prepared for slaughter. He came in with them. And the people lined the roads and they waved palm branches and they threw down their robes for their king who in less than a week's time they would cry out to be murdered. So don't ever think just because you sing pretty on Sunday morning, you're safe. Don't ever think because of some emotional high you get being around people worshiping that you think, we're in. I must be saved. Because that's what everybody in the crowd thought. But when they had the choice between Christ and Barabbas, they made a clear choice. Crucify Him. Even when a Roman said, I don't find anything wrong with him. I find nothing to crucify him about. And even sought to beat him to satisfy their bloodthirstiness. It couldn't be satisfied. So don't fool yourself. Don't sit here among God's people and worship is what I'm saying and say, I'm okay. Know Christ. The problem that those people had is they did not know Christ. They did not receive him. He was not their actual king. And so I just want to warn you, as the evangelist in me saying, as great as that was, and believe me, that is a simple, small foretaste of what we will do for all eternity. When we're worshiping that way, I start to think, if my heart feels like it's going to pound out of my chest in this place, what will it be like in His presence worshiping? For all of eternity. Not for 30 minutes, but forever. But listen. Some of you sitting here may not be there. Don't ever take for granted that He must be your King. He must be your Lord. You must bow your knee and your heart to Him. Children, come to Him. Our passage today is going to talk about that. Come to Him. 75-year-old sitting among us who's never bowed the knee, bow it. Your days are short. They're but a whisper of a breath. Come to Him. Uh, Psalm 8. C.S. Lewis says, 
as only C.S. Lewis can, in his commentary on the psalm, he just writes, Psalm 8, an exquisite lyric. That's the British English professor. <laughs> Derek Kidner, in his two-volume set on the psalm, said, this is the prototype for all hymnody. If you want to sing hymns, if you want to write hymns, this is it. Look to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 rises out of the book of 150 as one of those, like Psalm 1, like uh, Psalm 2, like Psalm 19, like Psalm 51, like Psalm uh, 23. It rises up above its peers to say, look at me. You want to worship God? Look at me. Psalm 8 is that kind of worship. It says, O oh Lord, I call your attention to this again. All caps in your English Bible, Lord, means Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. O oh Lord, our Lord, Adonai. In one sentence, David captures, He is the covenant God, and He is my King. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Some have wrongly seen Psalm 8 as a praise of the, of the nature and the height of mankind, and they miss it. That's not what Psalm 8 is. Psalm 8 bracketed with what its purpose is. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The writer wants you to understand. David wants you to get it. The Holy Spirit has inspired it. So you might see, God is majestic. The title of the sermon is, God's majesty displayed in man. Not the display of man's majestic nature. But rather, God's majesty displayed in man. They're, the commentators are right when they say this is a psalm that talks about the height of mankind. But they miss that all that is is to show us it's like a platform that we can climb up to the height of humanity and then peer upward at what the true height is, which is God. We look down at beasts and we look up at God. We're in the mediator. We're in between. We're not beasts, and we're not God. God's name is majestic. It is set above all things. So, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes. To steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Your translation may say angels. The word there is Elohim. It is the plural that is commonly used for God. So there's been an argument from the beginning. What you read in your English text is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. A little lower than the heavenly beings are angels. I'm not disputing that, but I am saying 
many have seen this to be a little lower than God. A little lower, not in a way of putting down God, but rather saying that's the height at which God created man. Higher than, so much higher than everything else. Okay? So, I'm going to leave that open. I'm not going to answer that question. I have learned in studying the Bible that when people argue from the second century till today over a translation, I'm not going to figure it out. Hebrews 2 is the biggest period to say it's the angels because the writer of Hebrews says, in quoting this verse, he quotes the Septuagint and says, it is not to angels that he has said, but he created man lower than the angels. So I think that carries a lot of weight, but I still, because of the Hebrew, they did not write it in such a way. The writer, David, did not write it in such a way that it is absolute. So if you have studied this passage, many of you have, I'm sure, and you say, I think it's referring to us being lower than God, but higher than beasts. That's acceptable, according to the Hebrew. Okay? That's all I'm going to say about that in this sermon. If you want to talk about it, we'll talk about it outside later. Yet... You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want us to see three things, two things, and then answer one question. Number one, we serve a majestic God. I've said that at least ten times already, and it's on purpose. I want you to grab hold of the fact that we serve a God of majesty. In this first verse, it says He has set His majesty, He has set His glory above the heavens. This is in reference to His ruling over the heavens. He's not contained by our physical world. He's not contained by our physical laws. He's not in, contained in the matter in which we see here. He is the invisible one, the spirit being, the one true being of all, over all creation. Okay? Without Him being, there would be nothing else. Everything else that He created is beneath Him. Do you see that? He set Himself above them. His name is glorious. It, glory, as I've said and others have said many times, glory, hear this, means weightiness. It refers to the amount of weight that presses down and makes an imprint on something. We would use the term, we could use the term, if we were talking about walking along a beach. Alright? Beach is on my mind. I'm going to the beach after this service is over. So Hope and I will walk down the beach hand in hand, God willing. Her foot will not make the imprint that my foot will make. Why? Because I weigh more than she does. Right? God is so glorious that what we see, you take the most exquisite sunset, you take the most beautiful mountain range, you take the most amazing Amazing panoramic view of the prairies stretching out to the plains 
in Colorado or in the Swiss Alps. You take that picture and you look at it and meditate on it and all you are seeing is the mere imprint of His majesty. You're not seeing His majesty. We can't behold His majesty. If He were to unleash His majesty in all of its fullness, in our sinful being and state, it would evaporate us. But we see the mere imprint, the weightiness. Think about that. God, our Lord, has placed His glory above the heavens. He has pressed down and left a footprint for us to see Him. Just see a part of Him. Just see how great He is. This morning I was driving up here and I took this little cut off road up here and I made the big turn and there was a mama and two uh, little deer with her. A doe and two fawns. And, and, and And those little fawns ran behind their mama. And their mama sounded the signal and they loped up the hill. And I thought, that's that's finger work for God the beauty of that is nothing oh Lord our Lord how majestically glorious your name is in all the earth when an evolutionist children tells you when your science teacher at school tells you when your professor at college, who is the most brilliant man you've ever or woman you've ever laid eyes on, tells you that our world came into being billions of years ago by a chain of interaction between chemicals that caused either a big bang and explosion or it caused slime to jump up out of the pit and begin to act as the lowest form of being and then up the chain it went until it got to humanity and all that we see came through circumstance and happenstance. You simply sit respectfully and in your brain say, No! What I see is the weightiness, a mere imprint of the glory of my God. Don't buy the lie. The reason I call it a lie is because that's exactly what it is. Parents, make sure when you're watching the Discovery Channel and they start saying some bogus stuff like, about four billion years ago, just hit pause and look at your children and say, now children, that is a lie. Why? Because God made what we see. It didn't simply appear. It's foolishness to say it did. It is taking away from God the only residual picture of His glory. And that's exactly why science does what it does. It attacks the foundation because it knows Satan is brilliant. He knows if we can take that away, then it takes away their reason for God. It takes away their picture of God and it causes that voice inside that says there is a God to start to get smaller and smaller don't believe the lie oh Lord our Lord how majestic is your name in all the earth he placed his name above his creation and he pressed down on it so that it has the imprint of his glory
I want to skip verse 2 for the time being. We serve a majestic God. We see that majesty, verse 3, in the heavens, which are the work of His fingers. Now, in this, we can assume that what David is doing is he spent many a summer night laying out in the open with no distraction from light, which we never get the benefit of unless you go somewhere else besides here, and just gazed at the heavenly bodies. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've had the, 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 the glorious privilege to lay down on my back 11,000 feet on top of a mountain. To lay down, no electricity, no light, no cars, no anything. Amy's been there. Jordan's been there. To lay down and to look. You think you see stars here? I don't care where you live. You can be in the deepest recesses of Ohatchee or Piedmont. There is electricity and lighting interfering with your view of God's creation. I think everyone once in their lifetime should go somewhere in God's creation where that's not the case. And take your children and y'all lay down on a blanket or on the cool grass and stare. And I'm telling you, the stars look like cherries that you could reach up and pluck. They're so gorgeous. They're so beautiful. David had done that, and what he said was, what I'm looking at, all of this beautiful panoramic view is the mere finger work of God. It's like a little lady who likes to knit. It's not hard effort for God. He created this with His mere spoken word. He put all of this into existence. Our God is majestic. Our God is majestic and we see His majesty in the heavens. In the moon and the stars which have, He has set in their place. Now, He introduces our second point in verse 4. Second point is, we see God's glory in creation and in man. Verse 4 asks the question, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Being caught in concrete jungles, people begin to think that humans are really something. But when you get in God's creation, you will be put in such vulnerable places and situations that you will realize, I am a gnat in the universe. I cannot, I cannot overcome the power of something as simple as one of, wild's, wild, one of God's created wild beasts. One of them. And there are millions of them. I can't overcome this sheer rock cliff that God put in my pathway. And I had looked on my GPS and I had it all planned out. I was going to walk from this point A to point B in a straight line. And then I got to a cliff. And that cliff said, God is bigger than I am. And He didn't put that on the GPS map. So I had to walk. It sounds familiar to some of the guys in the room. I had to walk a long way to get around it. Because you couldn't go there. Right? Creation shows you you are minuscule. Death shows you you are minuscule. The greatest among us die, and in a period of years we forget their greatness. They become mortal. All the world is created to show us, or cause us to ask the question, what is man? 
Only people trapped in concrete jungles their whole lives that never get out to see God's creation can say, what is man? David is not bowing the chest. He's bowing the head. I picture him laying, looking at the stars, and then rolling to his belly, facing the dust. Who am I? Who am I that God is mindful of me? I'm nothing, is the answer. God has no reason to think of me. He has angels that obey Him at His beck and call. He has creation, which until we fouled it up, was good and very good. Who are we that He's mindful of us? That's verse 4. But look, it doesn't end there with the question. Verse 5. Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion, rulership, co-regency over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all created things. He then goes on to say, all sheep and oxen, also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea is under man's feet. It is under His dominion. Genesis chapter 1 If you'll hold your place in Psalm 8, this Psalm 8 has a reference to Genesis that is undeniable. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God has created the beasts of the earth and the livestock and all these creeping things. He's created the heavens. He's created the earth. He's created the dry land and the ocean. He's created night and day. He's created everything that there was to create. And then in verse 26, God says to God, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's Psalm 8. David is quoting Genesis chapter 1. Verse 27, so God created man in what? His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. For those who take the words of of verse 5, a little lower than the heavenly being, the heavenly being being God, they have on their side Genesis chapter 1, which uses Elohim exclusively, and it exclusively refers to God. And so when David's quoting this, had he wanted to refer to angels, what they will argue is, he would have said angels. But because he said Elohim, he was referring to God. How could he say a little lower? Because look at verse 27. He created man in what? His image. His likeness. So David says, a little lower. What he's not talking about degree, he's talking about kind. What he's saying is, you're not a beast. That's what God's saying. Children, when they tell you that you are one step away from a chimpanzee, they could be no further from the truth. You are not one step away from a chimpanzee. You are all the world different from an animal. In Psalm 8, in our verses, when it says, you have created him a little lower than the heavenly being, 
that made him a little lower. That, that little lower there that's translated for us in the Hebrew speaks to where we're to be looking. It, it, it gives the idea that you're not to be looking at the animals for how you are to live and behave, but rather looking toward God. Learning how to behave and relate with one another by looking at how God relates with God. In the Trinity, in the Trinitarian communion that they have. That's where man takes his cue. Man is not becoming more and more like a beast in creation. Man is becoming more and more like God. So much so that 1 John says in the redeemed being, man will one day be a mirror which Christ looks into and sees himself in heaven. In the new heavens and the new earth. For all of, all of time, we will reflect His glory. So, what, the, what we're learning in Psalm 8 is that the majesty of God is displayed in man. How? We're created in His likeness, in His image. Not to become more and more like beasts, but to become more and more like Him. That's how we were created. And to show that, God shared His regency, His rule, with all of the earth, with mankind. Genesis chapter 2 tells us very plainly how he did that. He created special classes of animals and paraded them beyond Adam. And Adam named them all, which means he had rulership over them. Dominion over them. But he didn't find one like him, and so God took from his side, from Adam's side, and made Eve. And Adam named her, which means he affirmed the roles that God had set forth in marriage, He's the leader of the marriage. He named her, and they together were to reproduce and be ruling all of creation. So had they not sinned, what would have happened is they would have ruled with God all of creation. They would have gone from the garden across the globe. And I just want to throw this out there for people who love to think about these things. And they would have maybe colonized the moon and they would have maybe gone and lived on Mars one day. I don't know. But they would have ruled all the creation. They would have had dominion over all the created beings. It doesn't bother me. You know, People say, does it bother you that they talk about colonies and that? No. That's a spark of the divinity which God, of the Imago Dei, of the image of God inside of us that makes us want to rule over everything. It's twisted now. It's perverted. But it's still there. So in sin, what happened? Man rejected God. His, the image bearer rejected the, the reality. The image bearer rejected the reality and looked to the beast and said, we'll act like them. So we began to live by our heart's desires, which were twisted and sinful and deviant. And so we have sin. And it's played out in very real ways, isn't it, in our lives. Psalm 8 says, originally when God created us, He made us a little lower. And then He used us. He entrusted us with a great authority to rule over all the earth. So, the answer to who is man that God should be mindful to him is that man is God's image. In God's image. And he is to rule and reign with God. So finally, I come back to verse 2. Because the reality is Adam didn't fulfill this the way he should, did he? I mean, we're not ruling and reigning over all things. George Whitfield, 
<laughs> said, your dog barks and bites you because he knows you're not living the way God created you to live. The creation, in other words, groans at our sin. The creation gets angry because we're, fail we're failed, we're flawed, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We're not good owners and possessors and rulers, are we? We're failed. We can't even manage our little hounds that live under our roof very well. And they get frustrated with us. That's what George Whitfield would say. So, what is verse 2? Why, in the middle of this praise and this great, as we've already said, hymn of God's majesty, would he insert verse 2 where it says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. So I ask the question to close, what is the meaning of verse 2? And I think in finding and understanding the meaning of verse 2, we then get a greater understanding of the entire psalm and the entire Bible. We are God meant, created, crowned with glory and honor from God to co-rule, co-rule co, co this earth. And because of sin, we're not able to do it. We're failed. Verse 2 gives us hope. Verse 2, in the Hebrew, says that He established power and strength in the mouth of babies and infants so that His foes, His enemies, his, the avenger, would be shut up, quieted, stilled. Hold your... Hold your place in Psalm 8 and turn to Matthew 21. It's Palm Sunday. I told Dr. Flanagan when he's coming in, I said, you know, you plan, I planned these sermons in October. And based on everything we had to do in January, this is where we landed on, Psalm, on Palm Sunday. I didn't do anything. You know, you've been here. I preached Psalm 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Palm Sunday, I'm on Psalm 8. God does things like that. Not, not me. The triumphal entry is the passage which focuses on what happened historically on today. Beginning in verse 1 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This is a strange thing to me as a farmer as growing up to think that a man would give you his donkey if you just simply said, the Lord needs it. Does that not strike you? I mean, I wouldn't give you my donkey just because you said your Lord needs it. Why did the man just give him the donkey? Jesus answered, or Matthew answers, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Zechariah 9.9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The man obviously knew his Bible. 
And when they said the Lord needs a donkey, he thought, our king is coming. You can have it if you're the king. If it's for the king, take it. So they take it to him. And the disciples come and they went and they found that it's just as Jesus said. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, uh, put, them, uh, put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. That is a messianic title. That is to say, He is our Messiah. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's the highest form of praise. It's like us singing doxologically, Holy, holy, holy. That's basically what they're saying to Him. This is the highest word of Hebrew praise. Hosanna to Him. And when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, so they're accepting him, it seems. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple. So he's come in, and he's entered to this great praise, and he goes into the temple. And he went into the court where they bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money. So now he begins to show off his authority. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Look at this. The enemies of God have amassed. The avengers. The ones who hate Jesus. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that He did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant. And they said to Him, Do you hear what these are saying? Now I want to say to you, here we are in the temple court. Lame and blind and broken and poor are coming to Him and He's healing them. And children, children, probably about age four or three, don't let it bother you that it says they're nursing. That was common in their day. They nursed up to three, sometimes four years old. Okay, So the picture you have is these nursing children these little ones, see Him enter in. By the way, this is a side note. This is an argument for children being in worship. They're learning more than they could ever learn anywhere else just by being around you worshiping. They see the people worshiping. They see Jesus enter. They hear the cries of Hosanna to the Son of David. And in their little hearts, they think what? This is the king. This is our deliverer. This is the one God promised. And they break loose from their sucking. And when they see him healing, they run around. Get the scene. They run around to everyone like a child would saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. They're praising him 
praising Him, and the avengers and the enemies, the religious ones, are standing back saying, shut their mouths. Jesus, don't you hear what they're saying? What are they saying? Psalm 8 is what they're saying. Verse 2. Jesus says, they say, can you not hear them? Obviously, He can hear them. So He looks at them and says, have you not ever read? It's a great response. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. That's not Psalm 8 too. Not in the Hebrew. Psalm 8 too doesn't say that in Hebrew. It says, you have prepared their lips with strength and power. Then we, we read it. Let's, let's look at it. I want to make sure you're with me here. When I took a left turn, you took a right. We're in trouble. Right? Psalm 8 verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established what? Strength because of your foes. To steal the enemy and the avenger. Jesus says, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. What Jesus does is amazing. One who read and spoke, we have to believe, Hebrew, and regularly in his everyday life spoke Aramaic, doesn't quote Hebrew at all. He takes the Septuagint's translation of Psalm 8 to the Greek Old Testament, and he quotes it. Why? Because in this, he's showing us how God is manifesting his majesty in people. It's not by the powerful ones. God is not showing His strength through the rulers. God is not showing His strength through those who have a lot of money. Through those who are in the in crowd. God is showing His strength in babies. How is He showing His strength? They worship their King. What shuts the mouths of His opponents is that even babies recognize Him for who He is. He doesn't quote the Hebrew. He quotes the Greek. That's intentional. That's not a mistake. That's not Jesus saying, well, it's just what came to my mind. He's God in the flesh. He obviously could have just quoted them the Hebrew. That's what they would have learned and memorized. They would have known the Greek also. So they, when He answers the way He does with the text that He answers, understand Him to be saying, I'm God. I'm displaying my strength to you, not by your religiosity, not by your rulership, not by your power, not by your money. I display my majesty, my strength in babies. They praise me. And that is so profound that the rulers shut up and leave Him alone. The next verse, verse 17 says, He then left them and went out of the city. They had no answer for Him. So the fulfillment of Psalm 8 verse 2 is that very thing. The strength of God is shown in the praise of children. The strength of God is shown in the creation, but it is shown specifically in the praise of children. What are they praising? They're praising Him as their Messiah. They're praising Him as their Lord. They're praising Him as their King. 
And Jesus, far from rebuffing their praise and saying, you've missed it, I'm not who you're looking for, turns to the leaders and quotes Psalm 8-2. And they duck their head, shut their mouth, and he walks out of the city. He's just committed blasphemy if he's not who he says he is. They had chargeable offense. He has claimed to be God. He's in the temple. Why didn't they arrest him? Because they had no answer. Because the irrefutable proof that God has put in the lips of babies is that he is praised. That's the irrefutable proof. Now, I want to apply that into your life quickly. Many of us try to fight our fights with wisdom, our spiritual wars with argumentation, and great learned reason. And I have no problem with any of that. I love to learn. You know I do. But you will shut the mouth of the avenger and your enemy, not by how smart you are, but by how well you praise God. In the moment of your attack, be like a little child, not like a ruler. Show humility and worship God. In that moment, they won't have anything to come back with. Not even Satan hangs around to listen to you worship Christ. He wants no part of it. So rather than arguing, praise. Rather than defending, worship. Rather than exalting self, exalt Him. Psalm 8-2 is true on Palm Sunday and is true every day in our worship. The key to living the victorious life is knowing the victor and praising Him that way. Not becoming the victor. Not becoming the exalted one. So on Palm Sunday, the lesson of humility is best lived out by us praising our King. Like children, not like rulers. Not like wise, learned, religious people. Be a little undignified. There's nothing dignified about three-year-olds running around tugging on people's coats and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. They have no reservation. They have no, they have no sense of decency or order, do they? Why? Because they're just loving Him. They're just praising Him. The dignified ones are the rulers. The enemies, as God calls them. We learn the lesson of Palm Sunday and we apply it when we worship Him in humility. When we see that His majesty is displayed in creation and in us, but it's in us and crowned on us only, only in that we recognize Him as our King. That's it. That's it. Outside of that, we are despicable beings. But inside Him, we are glorious to His sight. Let's have Palm Sunday every day. Let's worship our King.